Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, Japan, your host. And today we are talking with founder and CEO of Fabric in Tokyo, James Hollow. Thanks so much for joining, James. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, JJ. It's wonderful to have you. I have been following your work, and of course, we're going to talk about the wonderful research、um, project that your team did、uh, for Fabric. But before we start that, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got started in sustainability? Where does your interest in the balance between people, planet, and profits, where does that stem from? Yeah, well,、I'll I'm not sure I can give you a very succinct answer, but definitely in my case, it's been brewing for a long time.、Um, my father was, um, is a,、um, a retired environmental lecturer, so I've kind of had、um, books on climate change since I was a kid.、Um, and it was always there, I was reading a lot about it,、um, and in various ways was kind of getting involved. Almost、um, as an entrepreneur, looked at building a business.、Um, Connected to environmental sustainability in the sort of early 2010s.、Um, but, you know, just couldn't see how that business model would work and went a different way.、Um, and then, yeah, like in, the, in, in terms of the fabric and connecting it to what we're trying to do, communities that, that brands have to take the lead on this, to the society in Japan. So it all sort of came、um, ongoing. <laughs> Shall we say, and always、yeah. tinkering here in、uh, in Tokyo with the sustainable lifestyle and、um, how I can raise kids and have a full life with,、um, without having too big a footprint. And you have big challenges living in a big city and raising kids and still trying to live sustainably. But I'm so inspired by so many innovative examples coming from Tokyo all the time zero waste shopping,、uh, urban farming, like we talked with、um, John Walsh、uh, before about creating your own food, even in the city. So there's a lot of innovation that you can do even within Japan's biggest city, right? Totally. And kudos to you, JJ. I mean, so many inspiring stories that you've been sharing on this channel as well. But, you know, I, I think that's the thing. We, we, we can turn this into such a positive journey and a sort of、um, an experience for ourselves and, and sort of get out of the negativity and, and use it as an opportunity to explore and, and, you know, rediscover, find new meaning in, 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 in small things without, you know, spending tons of money and jumping on a plane going a long way. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's tons of opportunity in whatever context to, for, for this, to, this journey to be explored in, in creative ways. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I want to do through this talk show as well is, is not to be overwhelmed. And I, I see this in what you're trying to do with fabric as well to take、um, the reality and see what you can do, what is possible. And be positive about making small steps forward. I think that's so important as we move towards a more sustainable future, hopefully, with Japan business. Totally. I mean, so as, as you flashed up on the screen just then, and thank you for that, that Fabric is a strategic consultancy helping brands reframe problems to create shared value with customers and, and community.、Um, I think we, you know, we, we talk quite a lot about this not being necessarily a new idea. Like, Sampo Yoshi as a concept is. Many hundreds of years old.、Um, that's the concept of in every transaction, business 
the business customers and society um, should be should be for seeing a benefit. Um, so a lot of what you know we're talking about now in terms of, of ESG, in terms of these modern concepts of sustainability, these ideas have been around in many countries, not least Japan, for, for a long time. I think what we one of the things that we did we did recognize with um, as we we set out to um, turn fabric into a real into a real business was the data gap um, around this, and you know what are the practical steps we can take to help business leaders, brand leaders take bold strong decisions um, into this space because we knew just from our conversations that many of them felt the need to on a personal level but also perceived a potential big business opportunity to take bolder decisions towards a sustainable uh, positioning for their for their company for their brand but putting the case for that wasn't hasn't been easy um, and we saw a data gap there um, and particularly on the consumer side like what are japanese consumers thinking uh, what are they what are, what do they see as their role in this journey and so one of the things we did at the outset of fabric is to actually um jump into this sustainability re um, research um and ask a whole bunch of japanese people a whole bunch of questions about sustainability and use that as then a, as a way to engage with our clients about how essentially put, putting detailed plans in place really you know understanding the current situation yeah. um and, and that's a, we're gonna a, you know. we're gonna talk about this research in a minute because i think it's one of the only big research projects i've seen which really taps into the japan japanese consumer market and what do people think and a lot of the things that people like like us working in sustainable business consulting or strategy creation we have seen this in a lot of reactions, but having this research is really telling. But before we dive into that, you mentioned um, some sustainability terms in Japan. And I think this is really good for our international audience as well as our audience in Japan to mention. So in your research, you talk about motainai, so don't waste, which I think is really embedded in Japanese culture the idea of sampo yoshi so businesses that benefit the buyer the seller and society which is very ingrained in the principles of sustainability people planet profit right and um i would also add and i think i i mentioned this before we started i would also add omotenashi and uh linking it back to the circular economy of the edo jidai of the edo period and how things were reused and recycled and there was very little waste uh, during that period, which is often referenced um, for Japanese culture. So having these as, as part of your consultancy, it's so important, I think, with Japanese consumers, but also with Japanese businesses to link to these traditional concepts. Is that what you found? I, I think it's I think it's hard to build, like, let's say, you know, is it a consultative recommendation that references like Edo, Edo Jedi sort of, you know, it has to be data driven. And so you do tend to look at where the market is, or you'd reference, let's say, um, the, the transition in other markets um, and, and look at that as a sort of, well, perhaps Japan will go this in this direction. But actually you're right. I think on a personal level um, and tapping into the wisdom of history, it's absolutely vital you know so much of what we need as solutions as ways of thinking as a sort of 
like spiritual and emotional material to to do this actually is is exists in in human history and that's that's certainly the case for japan quite recently i think you know when the black ships arrived in the 1860s they found a japan that was was pre-industrial and yet had built the biggest city on the planet so how did they you know how did that happen with without without coal and the steam engine and stuff um as you said it was just it was from one of the most um you know i wouldn't say perfect but one of the most circular um economies that that has ever existed um and so there's there's vast wisdom and lessons to learn from that um and yeah i think you you probably know lots of people who could who could help share that more than me it's something we could do more of i'm, I'm sure but those yeah, other we, ideas we had a great talk with asby brown uh, about yeah. his book um which is all focused on the circular economy of the edo jidai um but your research let's jump ahead to your research um you actually saw some progress in how japanese consumers perceive sustainability let's look at this first graphic uh, where you compare 2019's data to 2020's data, even in just a year. Oh, that's 2021, two years. Uh, you saw a bit of progress in how people are perceiving trying to buy brands that do good. Is that right? That's right. It's actually 16 months. So the first data set was uh, sort of late 2019. And then the second was, was spring this year. And so it's sort of across the COVID um, that first year and a bit of COVID, we saw, you know, what is, you know, from the point of view of brand and marketing strategy, a really significant jump in the number of people who are saying that they will look to buy brands that are trying to do good. Um, so that that is um, really encouraging. Um, I, I think if you ask the same question in other countries, the actual absolute number would be a lot higher than than 29%. Um, and I think the big question is how quickly will it will it continue to rise um and my guess is with japan it won't be linear i think things tend to sort of go quite slowly 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 and then really you'll see come some kind of tipping point effect um, i think, so we'll, I think the... we'll see that too we're gonna see a lot of uh, change in perception very quickly once it becomes embedded in media once uh companies are using it more with their branding and once regulation kicks in and it will happen it will happen probably category by category as well so it's already quite advanced in some areas but but you know just not even a factor in other categories yeah definitely well let's give a little overview of the state of sustainability in japan which was the title of this big research project um so i think i've got some stats here so you interviewed some people qualitatively, so some people had a more in-depth interview, but overall, 5,289 research participants, 115 sustainability questions, 10 brand leader interviews, six contextual inquiries, and three detailed case studies in a 75-page report. Quite a significant amount of data that you were able to get well done yeah i mean and to be honest much, much most of that credit should go to my team who did an awesome job um in the first let's say four months of this year um putting this together like so because to, to nick ashley to sondi bros um to the whole team basically contributed to this because it was a massive effort 
Um, and it was a it was a really great process to go through to really sort of try and get our heads around what's going on. Um, I think, as you said, that number of the the quantitative study of five thousand three hundred participants means that the results as are as robust as as any research that's basically done um, for consumer behaviour. Um, that's the sort of the the typical level to get a representative sample of the Japanese population. In this case, eighteen to sixty five. But then we also, those, um, the contextual inquiries, those were actually basically going with consumers into environments where they make brand choices or where they use brands and really getting under their, un, into their heads about how they think about these things. And um, they really helped us sort of interpret the quantitative data and put sort of human stories to, to that data. And that's something that um, yeah, well, I can I can talk a little bit more about in terms of how that's uh, how we can we use that to interpret what we found. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about the three brands that you were comparing uh, at the end, which is really interesting conversation. Um, the basic three parts of the study were: what does sustainability mean to Japanese consumers, and how much do they care, and how can brands Oh, sorry, how much do the Japanese consumers know or care about brands level of sustainability? And then number three, how can brands stay competitive in their approach to sustainability? I think these are such key issues as far as understanding the Japanese market, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, we, the, the last one was really informed by interviewing business leaders. Um, from a mix of international and Japanese companies. And you know, we made it intentionally anonymous so that they basically could say what they thought. <laughs> um, and that, that really sort of helped us see that they actually saw themselves on this journey towards a sustainable future. It was, it was clear that it's not if, but when that's gonna happen. Um, and so, you know, I think we were we were then really clear in, in, in sort of that emphasized or um, confirmed our our suspicion that we're on this journey to a sustainable future, that brands now have got the message that it has to happen. And actually what's holding it back is, is not that sort of intent or vision. It's just actually how do we go through that process? What does the journey look like? How do we make the business case? How can we show how this, if we make these steps, it will help us in this really competitive category that we're in. And and yeah, basically let's get on and do this and make it about make it practical and talk about actions. Um, so that was really inspiring for us, for sure. Yeah, so interesting and uh, so insightful. I think moving forward as a consultant or a strategist uh, to find out a way you're taking a risk by not embedding policies of sustainability, but also you're creating an advantage in the market by adding more sustainable aspects to not only your branding, but what you're actually doing to try to balance people, planet and profits, right? Exactly. I think, you know, a lot of the time, you know, it's not our job to, to, to sell sustainability. Um, you know, we, as consultants, we, we, commit to showing the you know objectively as objectively as we can what we see and you know to be honest that uh, the you, you can read our research output in quite a depressing way in that you know the number of the percentage of Japanese um, consumers who are who are really factoring in 
the sustainability credentials of a brand when they make a purchase is quite depressingly low still. But on the, on the positive side, actually the direction of change, and if you look at how um, the activities of the people who are engaged, and you kind of you start to see how that will get connected to uh, brand, brands who are take, showing leadership, um, then you can start to see a sort of, you know, form of theory of change about how the whole system will shift. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, you know, it's going it is going to be, it is going to be a journey. Um, and that graph that you're showing there, that kind of shows how... I think it's, it's an example of what you said about some of the data being depressing. <laughs> that when I looked at this, I was like, oh no. So maybe before we dive in more to the data, can you explain this negative reaction, the antipathy to sustainability, which I think is so interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's basically you know, in, in the survey, um, we had a bunch of questions around um, pe people's attitudes to to products that are positioned sustainability, etc. Um, and there was, a, you know, it's 5% of the total, so we shouldn't blow it out of proportion. But I agree with you, it is it is really interesting that we saw this quite sort of like basically pushback or rejection of sustainability as a as a sort of legitimate, credible um, concept or stance. And I think it shows that there's a cynicism out there, you know, the kind of the, some of the um, free response um, comments we saw were around um, you know, I think it's I think it's a con, it's a fad, it's not real, it's just a kind of marketing ploy. Um, and you know, I think we should listen to that. I think if there's if if greenwashing, you know, con continues and gets bigger, then I think that negative that that group that's switching off will get bigger, and that would be you know a, a real shame, a big a big problem, I think. Right yeah, now, in your, in your interview with um, Japan Times, you had a great expression I hadn't heard of before, green hushing. And you said if companies are just starting out to make changes, using green hushing, not talking about it at first until it's really embedded, is better than talking about it too soon and getting labeled as green washing because the customer can't see it in action yet. And I thought, wow, that's a great way to explain it. Green hushing. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can't take any credit for it. Um, there's a fantastic company um, that's headquartered in London, but with a few offices called Futera. Um, and they, that was founded by a really inspirational woman um, who who talks about green hushing. So I picked it up from them and thought, it's a, like, like you, yeah, it's a great term. Um, and thought, you know, we are building on on the shoulders of, if you know, people who, pe people and thinkers who've um, been, engaged in this area for a long time and you know we're, we're still learning a lot as well and um i i picked that one up from from them thought also that it was it was yeah it's a great um way of catching that idea that's so important to mention and i think a lot of people trying to get into the field of sustainable consulting or being a sustainable influencer as it's it's such a niche thing right now a lot of people are starting to feel like a rivalry well, that doesn't help anybody, right? Like we all feed off each other. We can all support and help each other. And it helps all of us. Um, having some kind of competitiveness just is not helpful for anybody right now. Yeah, I, um, it's not, it doesn't yeah. have to be a zero sum game, does it? Um, yeah. 
And also, I, you know, I think it's not it's not some small little pool that we're going to have to scrap within. You know, a lot to be, you know, to be honest, a lot of the time that we're talking, you know, when we're doing business strategy for clients, it's that you know you can definitely talk about it through a sustainability lens. But actually, um, it's just merging good long-term business planning and strategy um, because these effects that we're now experiencing as a society, as a, as a you know as a species on a planet. Um, they're not just something that sort of are cause for future concern. You know, they are directly impacting business models. And so there's a convergence. And, you know, I think we, we didn't put sustainability in our name for a reason, because, you know, it, it's a transitional term that will become obsolete um, because, you know, basically all businesses will become sustainable. They'll have to in order to survive by definition. Fingers crossed. <laughs> well, we won't be here but, to talk yeah, about Yeah, <laughs> just to touch on this uh, slide that I keep popping up. So this yeah. was, uh, I want to have a positive impact on the environment society, but I don't know how. And I think this goes back to what you're saying about the cynicism. So you have 40.4% people saying a negative reaction to this. So these are people that aren't convinced about the sustainability claims, right? That's why we see 40%, that's amazing. Not not quite. So I kind of have to explain a little bit about the yeah, structure of the please. data here. So basically what we, we did, um, we created a composite score from based on multiple responses within the survey. So the surveys were 120 questions, probably about 30 of those or something related to sustainability. And so we used those responses to basically create a, um, a sustainability engagement score, which goes from like naught to thirty or something like this, um, and there's we actually be, we actually realised and we didn't build this into the study that there was this negative group, and so we actually included that. Um, but then basically low, light, moderate, and high. Th these are ranges within that engagement area. So um, the negative group which is about 5%, 40% of those um, agreed with that statement. Oh, okay. Um, so it's a little bit different. So let's go to the other extreme with the high. So this, this would be like um, the top sort of 8%, people who are most engaged with sustainability, you know, in a whole bunch of categories where they're active consumers, they are taking sustainability as a real driver of their decision. And they're judging brands based on whether they're sustainable or not. And, you know, so even with them still like six, 68 percent are saying actually don't know how to how to act. And that's a really interesting result because it shows basically a, a gap between um, sort of desire and fulfillment, which is actually really interesting from a marketing point of view, because it shows there's a big opportunity. Um, and a really important uh, point for companies to start educating consumers about how they can be more sustainable. And you also touched on this uh, in your interview with the Japan Times talking about showing how a sustainable concept might be more efficient or save you time or even save you money. Like changing how we approach educating the consumer for making better choices. I thought that was really interesting. I've got a great um, visual on that. Do, do you mind putting um, the slide up? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be. Oh, no, there it is. Yep. Perfect. So, cool. So let me zoom in a bit here and get myself. There you go. I don't know, can you see that? Okay. Yep. 
Um, so this is when I was talking about that sustainability engagement score, that's this axis from from left to right here. Right. So there's that negative group and these bars represent um, populations. So that's um, actually scaled to the Japanese population. Um, so in this, you can see up here, that's like nine million right in this first group, this first bar, um, nine or ten million, perhaps. And so in this this low group with low engagement for sustainability is about 65 percent of the of the consuming population, 18 to 65, that we describe as as like barely engaged when it, as consumers. Um, and there's this light group where it is starting to pl play and be a fact that it's on their mind, but it's largely sort of, let's say, unexpressed um, as a factor. With moderate, you're definitely starting to see more, but not as much as the high. Um, so you can see the sort of the relative size of these groups um, and that with basically the um, ethnographic work where we went and spoke to consumers directly and kind of got into their lives and stepped into their shoes and saw how they were thinking about things. That idea that you've just, just, just touched on this sort of efficiency, we found this in coming through in a number of ways, but like, so one really simple one would be the echo bag that you take to the supermarket because everyone knows we now have to pay for the, the plastic bags um, and so we found a consumer who was very much in that sort of low light level of engagement for sustainability but was an avid adopter of, of these echo bags not because they saved plastic and were good for the planet but because it was really convenient it was really benry to be able to put that in your um, basket and then just pull it out and so um, that's an example of a really important factor or sort of opportunity that we see of creating win-wins between the brand's need to become more sustainable because of regulation, because of the pressure from investors and the ESG ratings that are going to be scoring them on how far along the journey they are. And actually this, the fact that most of their consumers don't actually, um, they're not thinking that much about sustainability. So trying to create win-wins where from the consumer point of view, the benefit is it's like time efficient, cost efficient, it's handy, Benry, um, but is actually doing something to push the company along in a positive direction of sustainability. Those are going to be really important in this transition. Definitely. And I think you could apply a similar concept to if you have your favorite jacket, you paid a lot for it, you've had great memories in it, and the zipper breaks. And Patagonia is one of the places where you can take it back and get it fixed, right? So sure. that's another added value concept of sustainability. You're not just beating in the idea of sustainability to the consumer. You're saying, this is how you can benefit by using that wonderful jacket that you love longer, right? Exactly. That, and that's sort of like rent, like rental ownership or owning for life. I want to wear it and it's part of me. I think there's, there's a big potential in Japan, especially for that. Um, that moderate group that this this graphic um, with the jacket is pointing to, we we found quite a lot of people in that group who we define as they they're quite obsessed with product design, um, and not necessarily sustainable to a sustainable benefit. But if you can can weave in the sustainable benefit to a really cool um, sort of innovative product design, then you you'll they'll they'll likely buy into that and find that really cool on a conceptual level. Um, there was one guy, um, you know, and I was in, I was doing this interview myself, um, who talked about buying this expensive jacket and that he was determined to sort of nurture that and, and maintain it like almost for life. And I put to him like, you know, he, I think he paid like 
this was like a shell waterproof jacket. You think you pay like 50,000 yen for it. And I asked him, so how much, if, if I told you that that brand and I had Patagonia in my mind would be, um, they, they would help you maintain it for, for life. How much would you pay for it? And he said, hundred thousand Jumayan. So that's, that's a, that's a proper green premium. Um, it's a kind of like own for life premium that is a big opportunity. And, and this is, this is the thing, this is why it's this fun space to be in because we can point to these new opportunities that are emerging from these, um, from these new mindsets. Um, Definitely. Uh, I just want to mention that we've got a great comment from Dan, who's joined from YouTube. Thanks for joining, Dan. He says, hey, how Dan. can we prevent greenwashing? Huge question. But I think you touched on this really succinctly in the Japan Times interview and just talked about honesty and transparency. And I think that also in hand with walking the walk, showing through actions how you are doing what you say is really important, right? I think, you know, I think you have, we talk a lot about data transparency um, and you have to really like measure and, and base everything on facts, um, be fact-based in everything. And I think that is maybe most of what you need in order to, um, you know, to counter greenwashing. I think it's not everything though, because, you know, you could be telling the truth about, um, you know, one aspect of a, of a of a product or, or let's say a brand's product range. Um, but like handily forgetting that 90% of the products are actually still terrible in terms of their sustainable sustainability. And so that sort of um, honesty when it comes to, you know, what you're um, actually, the proportion of what you're um, drawing attention towards, you know, that, that's still, I think, greenwashing and liable, um, you know, to, to actually mean that we get a sense as consumers that we're further along on this journey than actually the companies are. But it's a fine line. I think, you know, you, you have to let companies um, take a benefit where they've made an investment in a sustainable direction. Um, and you can also, as we do, remind them that if you basically over communicate, um, then it's going to come back and bite you in the ass. Because if someone thinks, oh, well, you know, that company, they're really sustainable now, but then they read an article um, from an, because an NGO has done a good piece of research and shown that actually 90% of what they do is, is really destructive, then you've just lost that trust. And so, and this is what I was talking about earlier, there's this, there's going to be this kind of coming together of long-term good business sense um, and, and sort of forward risk conscious decision-making with um, sound um, sustainability practices, including communication. Um, so, you know, increasingly we're getting to the point where it's just dumb and stupid to greenwash. Um, but we, you know, at the same time, we do have to be very kind of careful and aware of that. Absolutely. Good, uh, really nice good comment from Sean. Sean's joined from HAPS. Uh, he says Chrome bags are amazing about that too. So repair for life. And I think really? that, that not that. having to change your favorite product, that's a real added value in terms of it making the investment, maybe paying more, maybe going out of your way to find that shop initially, right? That's great. So I have a quite a bat increasingly battered Chrome rucksack. So that's a really good call out, Sean. I didn't know that. So I've just been happily delighted, um, which is what brands should be doing, right? They should be delighting and surprising consumers. Um, yeah. And sustainability is this whole new sort of space and area um, where they can do that. I think one way of looking at of, of sort of the sustainability of products is this new dimension of quality, 
we think about like, oh, look, is this a good rucksack? You know, let's look at its functional performance. But you don't think, okay, what are the upstream inputs that have basically constituted this physical object? And how, what level of quality was brought to bear in getting those materials together? Um, and this is would like from the a food, let's say from the point of view of the food industry, which is another particular passion of mine, that becomes so important. If you look at, you know, recently, I, you know, I can't go to like go and buy chocolate without sort of thinking of now that I know that the how cacao is farmed can be you know, either actually really regenerative to communities, you know, people, um, well-being and the environment on the ground versus incredibly destructive. You can never look at the chocolate shelf again in the same way again. Yeah. Um, and I'm so, so you know, happy on the chocolate point to see people tree chocolate available around Japan, like even in my local supermarket, because it's fair trade cacao. I know that they're supporting the growers and the makers uh, in their process. And uh, I think Sophia Mini, the founder of People Tree, years ago, she was saying exactly what you said earlier, that uh, sustainability should be the standard. She was talking about fair trade being the standard and something we don't need to talk about anymore. But unfortunately, we still do, right? It's still something that's rare and not the norm quite yet it's yeah and i think you know i think it is coming and it will come to different categories at different speeds um i you know i, I hope cacao and coffee moves really fast i think those are those are areas where where it could um but it's you know you what one of the things that the food area really makes clear is that th these are systemic problems these are systemic issues um and, you know, I think there's a lot that can be done with accreditations and putting labels on things and, and building awareness. And, um, you know, just that's the thing about basically brands help people make um, more efficient decisions. Right. You know, you don't want to have to just sort of sit there, stand there in the supermarket, like re reading sort of a long report as to whether like you should buy this or not. Brands become essentially brand brands are a promise of a, delivering a certain quality on a consistent basis. And so, you know, as brands associate themselves with sustainable credentials and sustainable quality, um, they have an, you know, this amazing potential to benefit from that. As like, you know, I don't, I know that if I'm going to buy that chocolate brand, then I don't have to worry about all that stuff because they're taking care of that for me. Yeah. That's an incredibly powerful positioning for someone who really cares about it. I think um, so. And, to and your one, point of, about education, one of your questions from your research shows this really nicely. Um, I feel proud when I buy sustainable products, even if nobody else knows. I thought this was a really beautiful little bit of research from the report. Thank you. You're so you're so good at pulling out these. Uh, there's plenty of gems in there. So thank you, JJ. That's I totally agree. And um, that's the kind of stuff stuff that underpins advocacy when you have people saying, "Oh, you should try this brand because for for, for this reason." When you get people feeling emotional about about brands in that way. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I did get and can get quite cynical about, um, you know, brands, but, you know, actually as, as if you think about it, brands are sort of scalable, that, that there are shared ideas and assumptions about, about companies. Um, and as such, they're really scalable and, and the sort of the power of brand branding and that kind of consumer system, you know, whether we believe that that's the right system for the planet or not it's the one we've got 
and if we're looking at tools to make progress in a positive direction, let's use those tools um, to, to to drive things. And so this this idea of voting, you know, dollar voting, use your power as a consumer to drive um, to drive uh, the that those systems, those production systems that do affect society, the planet, etc., in the direction that you want. Um, you know, it's not quite Gandhi, be, be, be the change that, you know, you want to see, but it's like, buy, buy the change that you want to see. Um, but well, you come, you come from a marketing consultancy background, so you know how emotional brands can be. And if people uh, take a brand as a part of their own personality and character, well, if they can start adopting more sustainable brands, that's going to make them a very loyal customer, which is then, like you said, they're going to be talking to their friends and family about it, promoting it on social media. There are so many added value for the company down the road as well as the consumer, right? Exactly. And that's one of the reasons that Fabric and we, you know, we chose not to not to be a pure consultancy. Um, a lot of the time, right now, we we are engaged with projects where we're not touching really so much on the, the the brand side or dealing with communications or engaging with consumers. All we're doing is actually help helping businesses to to think through this transition um, and change their business model, change the the way that they're engaging with different partners, rewire essentially to get on a, a more sustainable. Um, uh, sort of journey and roadmap um, but we do you know in the previous life we were a, a communication agency albeit one that used um, scientific methods and a lot of da data science and analytics um, and the fact that we can we can bring those together within one company today is really powerful and unique so we can go from that sort of like re helping businesses redesign their business model right through to actually telling the stories in us with our storytelling specialism to um, engaging consumers in the right place in the right way with the right message to drive them further along a, a journey with a brand to make them more engaged and more loyal as, cons as, a, as a customer. Um, that's, yeah, that's a really big part of what makes sort of um, fab fabric unique and um, what I think clients, the benefit that clients see in us. Great. Uh, Sean says most repairs. Sorry. So make sure you check before you take it back to the Chrome Thanks, shop. Sean. Thanks, Sean. I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, let's talk about the three brands that you were comparing, because I, I found that really interesting. There's certain international brands that we always equate as, like you said, a green premium for Patagonia, for example. Um, but how brands are perceived by Japanese consumers seem to be a lot more connected to the Japan brands that they value as a part of the Made in Japan brand. So Toyota was actually the number one, right? Right. So in our study, um, another big part of the survey was, was we picked 35 brands across a range of categories and basically asked the respondents um, to rate them in terms of um, how they thought they were doing for sustainability. But we didn't actually use just this blanket term sustainability. We had six different areas of sustainability. Um, and those areas actually under them sit um, about three of the SDG areas, the tiles. Um, and so, the, yeah, so that's actually, that graph there is, is an aggregate. I don't know if you've got the one with the, um, where it's broken out 
by and ranked by area. I've got it um, on my screen here as well. You got this one? If you want to bring it up on your screen, maybe. Yeah. So this is more like the um, the underlying data, as it were. We asked we asked the respondents to to basically um, rate brands against these six areas: from social development, economic, technological development, basic living needs, conservation environmental resource and equal society um and what's really what's really interesting is that no one no no single brand scores like the same in every dimension they have strengths and weaknesses which kind of makes sense but if you look at say toyota which scores highest overall when we aggregate these together which was that ranking you just flashed up toyota um is the highest because it's number one in two dimensions, social development, economic, technological development, and is, you know, to be honest, pretty strong in others as well. So by second for conservation, um, but actually pretty low down in the ranking overall, which is really was really surprising to us because, you know, and actually so many of so many of the people we interviewed, um, the leaders in the in the industry pointed towards Patagonia as a as a leader in the space but it's just not really cutting through to the mass the consuming masses as it were um but actually on conservation which you where you'd expect them to be most sort of um where their focus is it is you know people many people do see that and they get credit for it um so the you know the conclusions are where brands do invest and, and show leadership it is recognized overall brands that are very familiar and already are well trusted like toyota um, in japan they basically um benefit more um because they have a higher awareness and that's that is something that's like not that surprising um given you know in in this area of work um one one thing that i thought was really interesting from this ranking is I would put the Eon Mall group much higher because I know that Eon Mall has electric car charging. They have yep. solar panels on the roofs. Um, they try to get local source vegetables and they're doing this new collaborative project with TerraCycle and Loop, which I just talked to Eric Kawabata about. Oh yeah. Um, yep. but, I, but then I was thinking, maybe Eon Mall needs to do less green hushing and more talking about what they're doing. Maybe the consumer's not aware of all the sustainability that they're up to. So it, it definitely potential for more communication, I was thinking, from their group. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that was one of our conclusions as well. Um, you see here it says unseen efforts. Um, and it, you know, I, there are there are brands. I think Patagonia would be one. Like L'Occitane um, was is another who've been organic and very responsible in their sourcing from you know forty year old company and actually from day one, who you know who basically you know talking to their leadership they they've seen the most benefit from that uh, commitment in terms of hiring and retention of staff. Um, so it's, you know what we're looking at here is not the only way that that companies can benefit from from um, being a, you know, a sustainable company, um, but it's gonna be increasingly important. And we agree actually that, that, you know, that there is a, in some cases a danger that brands who've shown real leadership are not capitalizing on it through their communication. And so a lot of that will be just how, how big they are. You know, I think Patagonia haven't 
ever spent a lot of money in sort of doing mass communication here. They've done a lot of very valuable grassroots um, work. But they've never really sort of taken it through J sort of Japan's typical communication channels to the masses. And maybe that's something that they could, could look at because you could have companies who do less than them being perceived as doing more um, just by, by communicating more. Um, yeah. And one other one that I thought definitely deserves more credit is Lush. I think a lot of people don't realize how embedded Lush is in the Made in Japan products that everything's made in Japan. I think it has the image of being a foreign company, but anyone who visits Lush and knows how enthusiastic the staff are and how infectious that enthusiasm about bring back the containers, not using plastic, using fudoshiki. One of my things I always suggest to any Japanese company using fudoshiki instead of plastic. Um, they're doing so much, but yet they're not really on the consumer awareness factor for valuable brands for sustainability. That was really interesting. Yeah, if I could refer to, to this this graph for that. So um, I, I totally agree with you on that. I think um, with this survey, we, we've gone very broad, right? And so you know, a company like Lush can, can, make, can have a very high margin business um, without talking to the mass market in japan by you know they they as if if their customers love them are very loyal and repeat purchase a lot then the lush business can be very successful um and you know as far as i know it is you know in, in japan but it's not massive and so you know if they were looking to 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 grow significantly then you would definitely um sort of sort of look at the opportunity to 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 get their message out that kind of message out more broadly um but you know also our our research shows that not that many people are ready for that um if you you know let's say they did a big tv tv campaign um you know that might not really cut through given where most people's minds are when they're sitting watching tv for instance however and this is why i got this up that kind of advocating solutions you know i, I think the that what we we can tell in a really visceral sense is the people who who are really engaged with this they really care um and they are advocating for for the products that are really delivering on sustainability and we're going to see that effect um and and it's it's positioned here as an arrow pointing down because they're talk they're going to be talking to those people with lower sustainability and sort of like pulling them in um to these um brands that are taking leadership and then there's going to be this you know this shift to higher engagement as there's a basically more education around it in the media, not necessarily attached to brands. Um, as I think the the direct effects of um, uh, let's say global warming, um, you know, touch on Japan. Japan is ranked in the top three in terms of actual um, sort of material impact to global warming, largely because of the the fatalities related to um, extreme weather events, flooding and uh, mudslides, etc. Um, and I think, you know, we'll start to see the consequences um, in, in quite scary ways that will start getting more attention. And so I think it's going to it will increase. Um, you know, you don't I don't I'm not wishing that on because that, you know, that um, is going to have a lot of negative consequences. But, you know, I think also the, the role of government and regulation um, pushing companies. The other one I'd, we'd really highlight here is, is also the role of international companies. So I think if you look at Japan, a theory of Japan change for Japan and, and what would accelerate 
Japan's transition, it will be international companies who have um, signed pledges. They've signed up to um, um, to let's say a twenty a twenty thirty reduction commitment, things like that. And and Japan, the Japan office, the Japan business as part of a global network will have to do its bit and have to contribute to that. Um, and then they're basically going to be thinking, well, how can we make this a competitive advantage within Japan? And to back to your point about the role of education, it's going to make sense for those international brands to do more education around um, around sustainability in order to capitalize on the their relative um, leadership compared to the Japanese domestic companies. Um, and we're already seeing that in a number of in a number of categories from retail to cosmetics to food um and i think that's the role of the international brands here is actually really big in accelerating the transition because if japan were like really cut off and and wasn't open as a market i think it would actually probably just bury its head in the sand for quite a lot longer but i, I don't think that's going to happen because they it can't the, the the domestic incumbents will will have to move in response to the uh, internationals. Yeah. I had an interesting conversation with a very traditional Japanese company called Hapoen, which is yep. a traditional, beautiful Japanese garden, but they're also like a wedding event space. And they did something really beautiful on their website. They connected the SDG targets with actions they are taking as a company to show how their international imports of coffee is connected to no poverty, how their uh, food education seminars are related to uh, like no hunger, like how each SDG 17 targets can relate to their actions. And I hadn't seen that from a Japanese business before. It was so nice, even though like you talked about on Japan Times, everybody's wearing the SCG lapel and you have a conversation. It doesn't seem like they have any tangible way to take action on it, but it's so nice to start seeing traditional companies use it in their communication to potential customers, existing customers, right? I totally agree. So SDGs were designed for countries, right? It, it's a, it's a, st a standard to compare the progress of, of nation states. And it's so interesting that companies have adopted it. And it wasn't, you know, that wasn't intentional designed into the, you know, the UN SDGs. Um, but I think what, what you are seeing, and I think we'll see a lot more of it in Japan um, is from bigger companies as well, is, is just that, that when they, when they publish a sustainability report, the actions they'll take will be linked back to or laddered up to the SDGs and show like which SDGs they're having an impact on. But I think, you know, we're doing a lot of this work now. Um, and the, the reality is companies are very unique as organizations and they, they, they should and must um, identify their unique opportunities to have a positive impact and then turn that into um, a strategy that, basically gives them a competitive advantage, not least when it comes from consumer perception, as we've been talking about, but potentially also in terms of, um, you know, reduced supply chain risk, for instance. So if you look at, you know, if you look at many agricultural products, those monocultural plantations where they're getting their inputs from, they are not, they're not just like bad for biodiversity, they're bad for, let's say, sequestered coil, 
carbon in the soil. Um, they are they are very risky because they could get wiped out by a drought. Um, they could get wiped out by a a new let's say fungus that um, happens to like it the temperature slightly warmer and slightly drier. Um, and so there's just a lot of um, now understanding or growing understanding that doing things in a sustainable way of actually intentionally complexi complexifying your um, your model. And, and this is kind of the, the, the concept behind fabric. It's like making the connecting and, and weaving your business model in much more sort of complex ways and um, to your your impacts and your um, the, the different um, elements of society and the environment is actually going to be just make good business sense. Um, and basically the, the ESG framework to bring in another one, that's basically investors looking at the risk represented by business as usual. Um, and if, you know, if these, let's, let's take a kind of, I don't know, a um, tire company that imports all of its rubber from massive monocultural plantations across Southeast Asia, that's not going to look like such a good investment as, as you know, the climate starts to change. Um, and so I think there is, you know, we're talking right now about sustainability. Um, maybe in 10 years time, JJ, we'll all have moved on a bit, but maybe the conversation will be less about sustain uh, about, you know, sustainability because it will have converged with, with good business sense. Um, and good, and I think that's important as well. Like, you know, as, as personally motivated as we are, um, by, by these things, you know, we, we made fabric a for profit, um, because actually we can use the mechanisms of this you know this new um stakeholder capitalist model to um to have a positive change and to use those mechanisms to actually drive things forward faster than if we weren't doing those than if we're only doing it from civil action for instance um yeah. and that doesn't stop us engaging in, in that as well um but i think you know we we do need a, a sort of an all the above approach to um to to make the future that we want to see happen um, and it's going to be a really, you know, sort of rewarding and fun journey as, as fabric to be part of that. That's great. And one thing I heard you mention, which I also heard from our Eric Kawabata of TerraCycle in Japan, is that the companies that you are reaching out to and talking to and working with have already been thinking about it have already been thinking about how to apply added value and sustainability to what they're doing, but they they weren't sure the best next step forward. Um, so that's really encouraging to hear. That's wonderful news. For sure. No, and actually, Eric wouldn't mind me saying he was one of the business leaders we interviewed for this, for this report. Um, and he's been working in this space. Um, I've got an incredible amount of respect for, for his work and dedication. And I'm delighted to see that Loop um, and TerraCycle are starting to make such such big gains now and, and really shift some really significant like volume over to their circular packaging solutions. That's really, really exciting. And, you know, but we saw the same thing. You know, we, like I said, like in 2011, 12, I was looking at doing something in the sustainability space. It wasn't necessarily called that back then, but there just wasn't, it was too early. There wasn't enough, you know, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, I couldn't make, make the model convince myself it could work, but now it, you know, it really is, um, the time. And I think that not least because, um, there is a sort of pent up desire and, um, you know, I think an interest in doing, in making these bold moves 
Um, but yeah, how to do that? Um, you know, as I, we pointed to the data gap earlier, right? Having really good data around this space, even if it suggests that, you know, not that not everyone is engaged with sustainability, that doesn't matter so much because you, you basically invest in the change in a market. Um, and you sort of, yeah, you, that, that's what, as investors, you sort of tend to bet on the, the delta, the change in the market, right? And that's what they're doing now. They're thinking, okay, it wasn't quite right a year ago, but now we're starting to feel if we don't move, it will be too late. Um, and I think that has changed significantly in the last 18 months. And don't you get the impression that compliance issues are coming and any business kind of um, making a, a step now, they're going to be a little bit ahead of regulation that's coming in? Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, I mean, I, I think um, if Japan's going to make, if it's going to hit its targets, it, it's going to have to start really, you know, they, they've put those commitments in place. They haven't really translated it into policy um in in any significant way um and so that they're, they're gonna have to catch up on that and it's gonna yeah basically i think companies will it'll behoove companies to actually show the way and be leaders in that space i think japan also and this is a point that eric made to us um is that J japanese a lot of the industrial companies like the b2b suppliers the who make machine parts who who have um you know involved in manufacturing they actually made a lot of the progress um, that the the rest of the world is now doing in terms of energy and energy efficiency um, for two reasons. One, just because Japan has that like what you the Motainai culture, um, where you know it, from an energy point of view, it's it, it imports all of the energy, so there's a high cost to that. And so, and then it really became important after Tohoku Fukushima when they switched the nuclear reactors off. Um, and there was an energy um, deficit and they had to really invest in uh, energy efficiency. So that's been a sort of already been in place for 10 years. Um, they've just told that story. They haven't told that story well at all, basically. Um, so actually the sort of underbelly of Jap Japanese industry has actually is in a pretty good place relative to other countries. It just is completely unsung and untold as a story. Um, but, but that, you know, that's not to be complacent because um, there's an awful lot more to go, not least in terms of the way energy is generated here. And another reason why going and transitioning into sustainable strategy and sustainable design and consulting like Fabric is doing, it's such perfect timing right now. It's also so fun. Like, I mean, if you think about what designing is, like you're rather than just sort of saying, okay, well, shit, this is this whole system is kind of broken um you know actually i'd like to think getting a little bit philosophical you know we we are the product of you know of, of nature we're part of the kind of you know the planetary system um we've definitely got the highest um imagine imaginative potential of any other species um and it's really it's really fun and rewarding to try and think how we can redesign the um, systems, products, services, the way that a system works on a system level um, to make it more in line with um, the way we need to go from a from a sort of sustainability point of view. Not, you know, and we haven't talked about gender, which I think is probably the most important area where Japan needs to shift or other social issues. Um, but, you know, those are absolutely in exactly the same way. You know, I think 
it, in order to make this progress, we're going to have to really um, like engage our creative and design um, parts of our brain and and really listen and be empathetic to to what it feels like to you know be consumers or be users of of these new solutions, um, and then really try and um, come up with these new ways of of um, being consumers of living of of having sustainable lifestyles so it, it can be a really like fun career journey to be on um and i don't you know it's, it can get quite depressing um but it's kind of a chance for us as a species to um to show that we belong here um and that's you know i think that's been really refreshing for all of us at fabric and you know others that you know in our open architecture where we we pull in partners and collaborate with them um, we, you know, we can make this a really positive experience. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Not uh, least with you, JJ. Yeah. I mean, thanks so much for all your hard amazing. work. Amazing. You've, you've been doing Such this an for amazing a while. Talk. I love, I love all the takeaways from this research. And of course, there's so much more that we weren't able to touch on because it's such a detailed 75 page report. Uh, can you just give people an idea where they can find more information about Fabric and actually see this report? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I've done a terrible job at sort of really getting through it. So please, please, there's tons in there. Please do um, go to fbrc.co. So that's for our Fabric um, homepage is fbrc.co. Um, and then in either English or Japanese, you'll find, I think, a link on the top page to the sustainability report. Um, it's also the listed in the case studies at the top there um so please download it for free share it around um yeah use it in your work give it to your boss um and if we can help in any in any way to get conversations moving faster we're, we're really open to that that's awesome and i think having this report is part of your three key thing approach that you give advice to companies or individuals you have to get the data so you know what to do with the data right find out where you are what your strengths and weaknesses are and then take action i love that three key approach totally i think you know i mean this is the, de the design strategic design process starts with um you know research analysis finding unique insights and then reframing the problem um, turning that problem into an opportunity that can create like essentially sustainable business advantage um, and then taking a set of coherent actions to deliver that um, and that's that's like what we're, we're trying to do on businesses every day so um, thanks thanks so much JJ for pulling that out and helping me tell the story and it's been a been a pleasure um, watching all of your videos like I, you're do, doing an incredible job and yeah good good luck with uh, all your work hopefully we can we can work together going forward as well i'd love that yeah i really look forward to collaborating and and seeing more of the exciting work that you're able to do and it's not just in japan actually you guys seem to have a, a foothold for asia and inter intercollaborative work with different asian countries as well as japan and a, international businesses so it's really an exciting way forward that's right we're, i mean as we as part of the mullen low group we're an affiliate of the mullen, mullen low group so um the I, ipg is a global um uh integrated marketing uh, company has has a minority stake in fabric 
and so we're tied into their network um and it's a it's a really great partnership we're really excited to sort of we restage that relationship with them um and we have some fantastic partners like the there's a, a group the monolo salt in singapore who do fantastic work around sustainability um there's the businesses in other parts of asia as well as uh, the us and london we've got lots of um, friends and colleagues there who um, we collaborate with so yeah part a part of our vision and mission is definitely to to work with japanese corporations who, who are headquartered here but who are international um, and for us to help them really understand the way that this area is moving in other countries um, and put global solutions together for them so that's that hopefully we can share some work around that in the future that's great thank you so much james no thank you jj thanks so much for all your hard work um, it's been a real pleasure awesome and thank you everybody for joining today uh, peter gave us an award on haps thank you peter for a great interview uh, louise on haps great to see you here and so many others thank you all for joining today and have a great day. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Thanks, JJ. James. Bye now. Bye.